I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to walk through an airport. I'm sure many, if not most of us, have had to make our way through an airport at some point traveling from here to there. I don't know if you've noticed this, but airports are laid out in such a way that you know what you're supposed to do. You walk up to the front door of an airport, and what's the thing doing? It's rotating. It tells you, get in, and don't try to stop halfway. <laughs> then you walk through that door, and then on either side of you, there's countertops. Obviously, it's every airport except Medford. There's countertops as far as the eye can see. And, and frankly, the countertops, these check-in stations are so vast that if you're not looking for it, you may not even see the way you're supposed to go after you check in. But it tells you, stop here, get checked in. After you get checked in, you make your way to the security checkpoint. And then, again, everything tells you what you're supposed to do. There are barriers, there are posts, they're cordoned off, and you're making your way in a zigzag fashion and you see somebody duck under. It tells you, yeah, each person is going to take their turn, each person is going to get screened, and the line needs to keep uh, moving. After you go through security, then you're going to find the hallway that makes its way to your gate. And these hallways are designed to tell you one thing keep going, don't stop. In fact, these hallways even have walkways on them that move for you. As if to communicate to you, we don't care if you use these things, we want you to get the message. Move. Keep going. This is not a lobby, this is a hallway. Keep going. And finally, you get to your gate. And what do you find at the gate? Chairs. And we know what we're supposed to do there. Wait. We did what we were told. We got to the airport two and a half hours early. It took us 10 minutes to get to the gate. And now we're going to wait for over two hours for this plane to show up. And I think of this process, and for most of us, you've probably done this several times. Of this whole process, I think the part we like the least is that last part, wait. I mean, think about it. Sometimes people complain about the security stuff, having to get screened by security. And we hear uh, people don't like that, obviously. It can be a little bit annoying and frustrating. But when people go traveling and they had a hard time, what do they always say? We were going to fly into Chicago and we have a four-hour layover in Denver. What am I going to do in Denver Airport for four hours? We missed our connection, and so we ended up having to wait for the next flight out, which wasn't for six hours. We had to wait in the airport for six hours. There was, there was a long backup on the departures, Again, this never happens in Medford, unless it's crop dusting season, I guess, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so we're stuck on the taxiway for over an hour waiting for our turn to depart. So we sat in that plane for a w waiting. We don't like it. We avoid it whenever we can. When you're at the grocery store, half of the challenge is finding the shortest line. Everything else can go wrong, but if you find the fastest line, you've won. When you're ordering online, they give you those shipping options. Ground transportation. Whenever it gets to you, good luck. Right? Two days. Okay, I think I'm at it. I want it right now. I want to click this button and have a guy knock on my door. We don't want to wait. In the same way, there's a lot of reasons you may or may not like going to the doctor, but I would suggest one of the things we don't like about going to the doctor is the very first room you're going to walk into is what? The waiting room. Now, we understand why this is needed. There's lots of variables in a medical office and schedules change, so 
I'm not throwing the doctors under the bus. But it doesn't make that room any better. You walk in, you see the chairs, you see the magazines, you hear that music, whatever it is, and you know everything about that room is telling you, get comfy. It's going to be a while. The gate at the airport, the doctor's office, the fundamental truth of these areas is you wait. You just wait. Well, you know, in the same way, the fundamental aspect of knowing God is waiting. I would say a fundamental aspect of knowing God is waiting. God's timetable is, is all His. God's timetable is completely His own timetable. Uh, he doesn't check in with us. He just has His own schedule. I don't think we like the idea of waiting for God any more than we like the idea of waiting for our flight or for our doctor. But the reality is, to walk with God is to wait for God. Think about your relationship with God in that silly illustration of the airport. Which would you prefer of those areas? Maybe your Christian life is kind of like the check-in counter. You're just trying to figure the thing out. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to have with me? What's the plan here? Maybe your Christian life is like airport security. Somebody's rummaging around in your stuff trying to figure out if you've got it figured out. Maybe your Christian life is like that hallway. You're on the move. You've got things to do. You're on a mission. You, uh, I don't have time to wait around for anything. I've got things to do. I've got important plans in place. You're not one of those people on the moving walkways who stands on the right. You're one of the people on the left-hand side with a full, long stride walk. I mean, the thing is already moving, and you want to really move. And when you see somebody standing on the left side, you call it, get out the way. I will knock you over. <laughs> You've got places to be, things to accomplish, and God had better make sure he keeps up. What we're going to discover today in this passage we're going to look at in Luke chapter 1 is that some of God's most significant and powerful work that He is going to do in your life, He is going to do in your waiting. You're sitting in a chair. There's nothing to do. You just wait. And what I want us to see from this passage today is that waiting is worth it. God is going to do something important, and He's going to do something that only can be accomplished through waiting. The work of wait. Look at with me again at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The work of wait. So Herod was king of Judea, and we get introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know two things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Number one, they're, they've been uh, around the sun a few times. They're old the second thing we know about Elizabeth and Zechariah is that they have no children. Zechariah is a priest, and he has married a woman, uh, Elizabeth, who is also descended from the line of Aaron. In spite of what appears to be a good adherence to the Jewish law, God had not blessed them with a son. Here's what we learn about their journey in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1 the angel speaking to Zechariah. The angel said to him, this is Gabriel, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. What has Zechariah been praying for? He's been praying for a son. How long has Zechariah been praying for a son? Probably his entire marriage. Praying and hoping for a son. In fact, the Bible, the way this is written, seems to indicate that this prayer was ongoing. Old man Zechariah was still praying for a son. But you know, we discover something about Zechariah in his response to Gabriel the angel. How will I know this? You notice that response he did. So Zechariah had been doing in the, uh, the waiting, the burden of waiting, the weight of having to wait. What had happened to him is what happens to uh, many of us, if not all of us at some point. He was still praying. He was still asking. But in the back of his mind, he said, you know what? The ship has sailed on that one. I have to let my hope fade because if I keep clinging to hope, it's, it's too difficult. He still prayed, but in the back of his mind, he's praying maybe out of devotion to God, out of uh, a sense of obligation and uh, hoping that God will do something. But at the same time, in the back of his mind, he's, he's saying, you know what? I know what the deal is. I know biology. And that dream is gone. And so rather than to hold on to hope and what appeared to be the uh, pain that can come with holding on to hope, he continued to pray, but his heart began to get harder and harder and doubt crept in. I don't know, before we keep going on, I wonder, that's a fair question I think for each of us to ask ourselves. Is there a place in our life where it finally got safer emotionally anyway just to kind of give up on God? Say, you know, it, it's just going to be easier for me in this particular area, whatever it is for you. Say, you know what, God's not doing anything there, and it's going to be easier just to sort of, all right, God, do your thing, but whatever. Because I can't keep getting disappointed. That's the weight of waiting. That's the, the heaviness, the burden of waiting. When we look at the waiting that occurred in the Scripture, and this includes Zechariah and it includes Elizabeth and it includes many other, the, the assumption is the waiting is not easy. One example of this is Israel in Egypt. How long was Israel prisoners in Egypt? 400 years. What was living conditions like? Well, they started okay, but they quickly deteriorated. So that at the end of that 400 years, in Exodus 3, verse 7, when God is talking to Moses about the situation, he says, I have seen their affliction. I have heard their crying. I know, God says, their suffering. God understood the waiting was not just simply biding time. Part of the waiting that we see that he uses in our lives is it is not easy. It is not simply passing time. It can be weighty. It can be burdensome. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 1 and see, and let's look at Zechariah's response to the angel when the angel proclaimed this good news that they would have a son. Zechariah said this, 
Now, how exactly shall I know this? Maybe he's asking for a sign. Uh, he may be asking for a lot of things, but we, one, we know one thing for sure from uh, what Gabriel's uh, response to Zechariah is this. He betrayed to Gabriel the reality of what was going on in his heart. He says, listen, buddy, I know how this works, and I don't see a way for this to happen. And I don't need you to come in here and stoke again my hopes that they can once again be dashed upon the rocks. I've done that enough. I'm over that game. What had happened is the weight and the burden of waiting on the Lord had, had changed Zechariah, hadn't it? Maybe early on in his life he was hopeful and he was energetic. And, and now as the years ticked by, the burden had weighed him down. And now his, his view on God had somehow changed. Perhaps he would suggest to God that God was answering his prayer, but he was answering his prayer just a tad late. Or maybe God was answering his prayer, but he was answering it weakly. Prayed for a car, and God gave him a bicycle. Prayed for a job, and God gave him one after he was injured and could no longer work. And this is Zechariah's view from his comment here. He says, I see God differently now because I've been waiting and my hopes have been devastated and I'm not sure, not sure if I can count on him. That's the weight of waiting. Look at Gabriel's response. He reminds Zechariah, that when Gabriel's off duty, he spends time with God. And then when he's on duty, he spends time with God. Gabriel, Gabriel makes clear, Zechariah, listen, I understand your viewpoint. I just want to let you in on something. I think I've got a little better perspective than you do. He challenged him, certainly strongly, but also lovingly. And he says this, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to you to speak good news. I didn't want you to do anything, Zechariah. I wanted you to just experience the joy of good news. I got good news for you, Zechariah. You're going to have a son. Okay, what do I do with that? Be happy. You're going to have a son. You've received good news. And now for the rest of us who have been weighted down by the burden of waiting, look at the end of verse 20 because this is even good news for us. He said, you will be silent and unable to speak. Well, that's not good news. Until the day that what? These things take place. How much of Zechariah's faith was necessary for God to do his thing? The theological term is zilcho. Zechariah was not needed. Why is this important for those of us who have experienced the devastation of hopes fading and giving up a little bit? Because we add to that guilt, don't we? Oh, God would have answered my prayer, but I'm a doubter. If I had the faith of my buddy over here, God certainly would have said yes. This is a great comfort for those of us who have in us a tendency towards doubt, cynicism. God doesn't need us to be awesome for him to do his thing. I mean, certainly I'm not the only one in the room that thought God went on vacation because I didn't believe him very much. 
we do need to trust the Lord. He does not need us to trust Him to do His thing. He said, listen, Zechariah, these things are going to be fulfilled. You're along for the ride. You got good news? Here it comes. You can be happy about it or not, but whatever you are now, you're not going to talk about it. The good news of Gabriel that Zechariah was going to have a son, I want us to think about this before we move to the next point. The good news of Gabriel, you're going to have a son, Zechariah, would not have been good news one second earlier. It was going to be good news, but it wasn't good news till then. Then it was good news. See, we want good news today, and God says, well, I'm going to give you good news when it's good news. And for Zechariah, that's when he was an old man. And when his hope had faded, I, I don't know what was going on in Zechariah's life, but my guess is God needed to remind Zechariah that in all the things that were going on, he wasn't the most important thing. He didn't have to be the awesome priest who trusted God and never shed a tear and never doubted. God showed up and said, I use guys who are busted up and their hearts are hardened too. Good news, Zechariah. God's good news always comes precisely when it's intended to come. Moving on to the next part of this, maybe we can think about it this way. God was doing all of this to bring to the scene John the Baptist, who was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. The plan here is to bring John the Baptist uh, into the scene so he could prepare his people for the coming of the Messiah. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of parents does John the Baptist need? Well, we know this for sure. He needs old ones who have had to wait. That's what John the Baptist needed. He didn't need the young dad who had never had his dreams dashed. He needed an old dad who could walk him through the devastation of disappointment. How do we, why do we know this is true? Over in Luke chapter 7, we don't have time to turn there. John the Baptist is in prison, and it's not too long that his head is going to be separated from his torso. And he sends his followers out to Jesus. And what does he say? Would you double check? Um, are you the one? Or, or should I wait for somebody else? I, the way things are working out, I'm in prison. And it doesn't seem like you're in charge yet. And I'm not. So, so he sends his disciples out and they meet up with Jesus. And they say, John wants to know, are you the one or should, they wait, should he wait for somebody else? And Jesus heals the sick, heals the blind, casts out demons, and says, go back and tell them what you saw. And he did that because he says, I know John the Baptist knows his Old Testament, and he knows what that means. And they go back and tell him, and John the Baptist goes to glory with hope in his heart. Perhaps the strength to stand in prison and at least ask the question of Jesus came from seeing a dad who had walked the road of hopelessness. The weight of waiting is real. Secondly, let's look at the fruit of waiting, the outcome of waiting. Why don't you skip down to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. That's John the Baptist, if you weren't aware. And her neighbors and relatives, everybody heard that the Lord had showed this great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. They were having trouble figuring out what to name him. And Elizabeth, of course, said, we need to name him John. Nobody would believe her. They asked uh, Zechariah what to name him, and he wrote on his iPad, name him John. 
They named him John. As soon as that happened, he could speak. His tongue was loosed. And look what he says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Do you think he would have written that song before? No. Something had changed. The waiting and the good news of God, the fruit of his waiting, the outcome of his waiting is that instead of being cynical at a God who had disappointed him, he still, in his old age, asking the same questions many of us would answer, ask if we were an old man with a son, am I going to make it to his 12th birthday? Am I going to see him uh, grow up to be a man? And we don't know when Zechariah died. Will I be a good father to John the Baptist? But the fruit of his waiting, and now God's working in the midst of that, was now he could say, blessed be the Lord. C.S. Lewis said it this way in the introduction to mere Christianity, quote, I am sure God keeps no one waiting unless he, see, unless he sees it as good for him to wait. Let me say it again, hopefully properly. I am sure God keeps no one waiting unless he sees it is good for him to wait. And that's what we see in Zechariah, a changed heart and a changed viewpoint towards God because he had come through waiting and God had done work in his heart. Zechariah had changed. God had done a work in him and now his cynicism and his doubt was changed to hope and joy. He could hear good news now. He didn't rebuff good news. He went from being a cynic to being a worshiper. Now, instead of questioning God's goodness, he writes songs about God's goodness. And this only came through the work and the weight of waiting, of sitting there year after year with no children and disappointment. Quickly, I just want to look at James chapter 1, verse 5. He talks a little bit about this wisdom in waiting. I'm going to read it. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he's saying here, ask for wisdom if you need it, which you do. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What we discover from that metaphor in the ocean there is the wisdom we receive from God. We ask God for wisdom. The wisdom we receive is to wait. Someone who is tossed to and fro in the sea, they make a move at every indication. Oh, this is happening. I better go there. Oh, this is happening. I better go there. Everything they do is, is back and forth. I need to do something. I need to figure God out. Wisdom here is to say, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait and see what God is going to do. I want you to imagine your own Christian life for a minute, or your own life if you're not a believer. What would your life be like if you never have had to wait for anything? What would your life be like if you got everything your way precisely when you wanted it? What kind of person do you imagine you might be? I think we can imagine if we got everything the way we wanted it, and when we wanted it, we would be completely unchanged. Here's the truth we need to remember. If we are going to be made like Jesus, it, it means we are going to have to intentionally move into those spaces where we wait and don't get things we want 
when we want them. To be changed requires waiting. The fruit of waiting is our cynicism and our doubt can melt away and our hearts can learn to worship Him even in the midst of disappointment and waiting because we know the fruit of that is we're going to be changed. We're going to be like Christ. It's the only way for us to change is for us to be chiseled away through sitting in the waiting room. All right, we need to move along, otherwise we won't be done by Christmas. The weight of waiting and the fruit of waiting. Finally, the last section I want to mention here is the glory of waiting. The weight of waiting is the fact that waiting is hard. Being conformed to the image of Christ through waiting is difficult. Having our hearts changed is a challenge. We need the Spirit of God to give us hope and diligence even in the midst of waiting on the Lord. And He's going to make us like Christ and use it to change us just like He changed Zechariah. But there's even more to it than that. I'm going to read verses 68 and 69 of Luke chapter 1. It's the first couple of stanzas of Zechariah's song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. The glory of waiting. What is the glory of waiting? The glory of waiting is this. For Zechariah and for us, salvation has come. We wait and we gain Christ. The glory of waiting is Jesus has come, so therefore we know He will come. The glory of of waiting is the fact that we're going to gain the kingdom of God in Christ together by faith. The glory of waiting is this for us. The most difficult wait is already over. We're that privileged generation that comes onto the scene and receives Christ and realize, wait, He already came. He's already purchased salvation for us. We have hope not merely that He might come, we have hope that He has come. The most difficult wait that history has ever known was the wait of the people of God for the Messiah to come. You and I are born... And by God's grace, we're redeemed, and we realize we're not waiting for Him. He already came. We are witnesses to His life and His resurrection by His Word. We know God will return. We know God's going to show up one day, and we know all this because He already has. Jesus is raised from the dead, and He will return. Hebrews 13, 5 says this. Uh, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The glory of waiting is that since Christ has come, by faith we receive salvation, we receive the Spirit of God, and Jesus says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we get to wait with Christ. We're not waiting merely for Christ to return. In many senses, we are doing that, but we're waiting with Jesus. Jesus is with us, and He will never leave us. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. I don't feel very close to Him today. He still could not get any closer. 
we wait for Christ. The glory of our wait is that we wait with Christ until He returns or until He ushers us home. This is why this is important for us as Christians. I want you to think about this just for a minute. You realize that most of your relationship with God will be spent in heaven. Most of your relationship with God, 99.99% of your relationship with God will not be here. You'll know more about God in the first two minutes of heaven than you learned your whole life here. This is the only part of your life with God that is lived by faith. The Bible teaches us that once we are in heaven, we won't need faith anymore. He'll be right there. We won't need hope anymore. All our hopes are fulfilled in Christ. What does 1 Corinthians say? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why is that? Because faith and hope end. This is the one moment in time, the waiting. This is the one moment in all of our life with God that we get to exercise faith and hope that He will return. Once this time has passed, that opportunity is gone. There will be no opportunity in heaven to exercise in faith in, in Him because He's going to be with us. Now is the time of faith. Now is the time of waiting. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So Jesus died on the cross, raised again, hung out 40 days, went to heaven, and he's been gone two days. It feels longer here. When we were talking about this in staff meeting, I said, we talk about different times that God has made people wait. Uh, Israel for 400 years, and then the intertestamental period, and I said, you know, but 2,000 years seems like a long time. Does it seem like a long time? Maybe you're too good of a Christian. For me, it seems like a long time. But a long time for me is not very long for God. And he says, this is a privilege and opportunity for us to experience what it's like to live with him in faith. God is not slow. He is coming. Faith and hope will vanish one day when we see him in person. The glory of waiting is we wait to see Jesus. The glory of waiting is we know that one day the waiting will be worth it because we will see Jesus. Listen, as good as it is, to wait and learn endurance and wait and have the fruit of God bear up in our life. As good as it is to be more like Christ through waiting, those things are all good. They don't hold a candle to the glory of our wait, which is what? One day we will stand before Him. Our wait will not be disappointing because we anticipate being with Him forever, and it's going to be awesome. Does our heart leap to think of seeing Him? Or do we still have a heart of Zechariah, which many of us do? And sometimes it depends on the day. Today I've got a heart of Zechariah, you might say. It's heavy. It's weighty. I don't see the end. And then God might do a work, and tomorrow you wake up and say, He's coming, I can make it. What are you waiting for in your life? Who are you waiting for? Years ago, a coworker of mine said this. You've probably heard this or some form of it. The reason it's called going to work is because it's work. If it wasn't, we'd call it going to play or going to vacation. 
you think about what are those things you're working for, you know, many of us have jobs and careers we find fulfilling and we find exciting, and you still call it work, I'm sure. Others of us might be here today and you find yourself in a spot and you wonder, when is this toil going to end? Will I ever get noticed to move up? How long is this going to last? I feel like I've been stuck in this rut forever. Maybe, and I'm sure this is the case for many of us here today, you've got challenges and you run out of months before you run out of money. Or wait, the opposite of that. When is God going to finally show up? I pray every night before I go to sleep, God, I need, just, I need you to provide here. When is the stress going to end? When is there ever going to be enough to cover all of the expenses? Some of us, and this is especially true, unfortunately, around Christmas time, you're wading through difficulties in family relationships, marriage relationships, relationships with your kids, and you're hoping maybe someday it's going to be different. Maybe it's going to get better. The strain of that brokenness and the tension, maybe one day it'll, it'll be relieved. Seems like everybody else is planning all these fantastic Christmas family events and I'm dreading them, you might say. Will healing in this relationship come or will I always feel alone? Will my waiting ever end? For those of us in these spots, I just want to suggest this, that Zechariah's song is for us. Zechariah's song is the song for those who wait. Those who wait and not just merely pass the time, those who bear the weight of waiting. Blessed is the Lord God. He has raised up a horn of salvation for you. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He will save you from your enemies. He will show mercy to you. In your cynicism and doubt, he hasn't given up on you and he isn't afraid of it. He's still right there and he has raised up a horn of salvation for you. He will show mercy to you. He will remember every promise he has made to you and every one will be fulfilled precisely when it's supposed to be fulfilled. You know, God knows your waiting is heavy. He does not give us waiting casually. He desires what's best for us to be like Christ, and that requires waiting. Because God knows in the furnace of waiting, He can give us a priceless gift, and that is to make us like Jesus. There is nothing better He can give us. If you didn't have to wait, the change He means to accomplish in your heart couldn't be done. God knows the glory of our waiting. He knows that He is going to have the joy of seeing the expression on our faces when we see Christ for the first time. You can just see him in heaven. He just can't wait. It's like, I want to see what their face looks like when they see Jesus. They're going to be blown away. He's going to have as much joy in that moment as you and I will. He can't wait for it. He can apparently wait 2,000 years. Zechariah was given good news from an angel that he would have a son. And the Bible tells us we have been given good news, but we didn't get our good news from an angel. This is what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in his last days, he has spoken to us by his what? Son. He didn't send Gabriel to us. He sent Jesus. 
Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus has come. He's given us this good news. And he says, I have come to save sinners. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead, that anyone who would trust God would be forgiven of everything they have ever done. And not only that, he's going to return one day. We know he already came once, and it's just a matter of time, and he will come again. His second coming is as certain as his first was. We wait, and in the waiting, he makes us like Jesus. Can we hear the good news? Are we able to trust him to experience the weight of waiting, to experience the fruit of waiting, and one day to experience the glory of waiting as we see Jesus with our own eyes?